Michael Mead is an author and storyteller, but perhaps more than anything, he is a mythologist. He is someone that can decode the true hidden meaning, the truth that rests underneath the fiction of all of our mythology. So listening to him speak, not only do you gain the wisdom and insights from someone who's been able to decode these myths, but if you pay attention carefully, you'll actually learn how to decode myths yourself. And that's been an incredibly exciting journey for me as I've pulled out all of my old mythology books and started to understand them beyond the surface level observation of the story. This is a phenomenal podcast covering a wide range of topics and stories. I can't wait to share it with you. So without further ado, Michael Mead. Before we get into our ads, I want to tell you guys, Fit for Service is throwing a festival. It has all the musicians, my favorite musicians on the planet, really. The Glitch Mob, Dr. Fresh, Troy Boy. I mean, if you can't dance and you don't want to dance when you hear them come on, you're crazy. They're the best. We have Emancipator, Dirt Wire, Lucky Luke, Satsong. There's so many different incredible people who are going to be there. I mean, the list goes on. I encourage you guys to check it out. Go to fitforservice.com slash Arcadia with a K. And it's called Arcadia because Arcadia symbolizes a return to the Edenic state, the second innocence, a place where we're in harmony with ourselves, with each other, and with nature. And the guiding principle of this festival goes beyond the leave no trace ideology. We're trying to leave it better than we found it. Leave the town of Alpine better than we found it. Leave the land that we're on better than we found it. Leave ourselves better than we arrived. And leave each other better than when we came. There's amazing speakers. Matthias Stefano, Charles Eisenstein, Zach Bush, Blue. Many of the podcast guests who you've heard are going to be there live. This is a once-in-a-lifetime event that if I wasn't throwing it, I would be the first to sign up and be a part of it because it's everything that I would want. Of course, the place is going to be beautiful, lakes and mountains. It's going to be a really, really special experience, and I can't wait to meet you guys there. So check it out. Go to fitforservice.com slash Arcadia with a K, and you can check out if it vibes with you. And if so, I will see you at Arcadia. Before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have True Kava. Now, the first time I ever had kava was a trip I took to Fiji. And I was out on the beach in Fiji, and a Fijian man, he mixed up something in a bowl that looked like dirty water. And he was saying, kava, kava, and he gave it to me in a little coconut of a cup, and I drank it. And I wasn't expecting much, but what I felt was amazing. I felt this calm, kind of euphoric relaxation and I got it. I understood why this was the traditional drink of Fiji and why this was involved in ceremonial use and also just for enjoyment. It feels really good. It's one of those herbs that you don't have to guess whether you took it or not. It's like, God, oh, did I have kava? You know that you took it. So when true kava came out with their formulas that are in ready to drink or in cans, it was amazing that I was able to access this without actually having to taste, which kava doesn't taste great normally, but they've done a really good job mixing it with juice and making it taste delicious and still giving you these effects of this really sacred plant of the South Pacific. So I really encourage you guys to try kava and especially if you're interested, try true kava. They make it really easy and pleasurable and you get all of the benefits of the experience of having kava. So check it out. 
Go to TrueKava, T-R-U-K-A-V-A.com. Enter the code AMP at checkout for 15% off. Once again, TrueKava.com. Code word AMP at checkout for 15% off. And I'd love to hear what you think about your Kava experience. And lastly, we have on it. This is the foundation where I've put all of the information, tools, techniques, everything that I could think of to help optimize the human body. That's where it lives, onit.com. So please check it out. We have so many different things from Alpha Brain to optimize cognitive performance to Shroom Tech Sport to optimize physical performance to the total human, which is another level of what people think of when they think of a multivitamin to all of the training methodologies and training tools and even just the information that we have available at the Onnit Academy blog. So please check it out. Onnit.com slash Aubrey gives you 10% off of all of these tools and all of these training programs. And it's truly the best that myself, all the top athletes, all the top doctors could come up with. These are things that people can use to just bring themselves to the very best version of themselves. So check out onnit.com slash Aubrey. Once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Michael Mead. Michael, great to have you on the show. Happy to be with you. Absolutely. So it seems that we're in a time of transformation for our society right now, for our world story. And it seems more important now to have stories that can guide us through these transitions that we're facing. And this seems like one of the most important things that we can do. And so I'm really excited to have this conversation because that's what we're here to do is we're here to allow these old stories, let them become new stories so that they can guide us through our specific time with the wisdom of the stories that have been told for many, many, many years. And perhaps weaving in the new contextuals that make this story even more relevant. So when you think about the story for our time right now, you know, what is the what are what are some of the stories that start to come alive for you when you start thinking about where we are right now as a culture? The first one is uh, a style of story, a style of myth um, from ancient Greece, which is referred to in ancient Greek as apocalypsis, which then becomes Latinized and then becomes part of the Christian Bible and it becomes apocalypse but it originally did not mean a fiery end of everything or zombies. It didn't really <laughs> include zombies. There, there will be people disappointed uh, that it doesn't include zombies, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the zombies could be a good modern addition, I think, maybe. But anyway, uh, so, um, but the word means collapse renewal. Collapse renewal. And so that's one way to understand what we're going through. We're at the end of an era. Um, in, a, in a sense, the world has already ended in the world that we had or thought that we had. Um, and the new one hasn't shown up yet. And so we're in a dislocated condition, mythologically and even cosmologically. But I think it's helpful to imagine that at the end of an era, you get collapse and renewal the way a far, in a forest, the big trees 
uh, even the ancient trees will finally fall down and they'll rot back into the earth and they'll be the food of the next forest coming up. And we're in that falling down, rotting down place, but secretly the forest of life is creating new life. And so in a way, I imagine our job is to witness the collapse and find a way to contribute to the recreation. Mm -hmm. So mythologically, the world can't end. To me, that's a helpful idea. I can't prove it, you know. And if, if it does end, there's not going to be anybody around to say <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> but the word end doesn't mean finito, goodnight, goodbye. The word end really refers to remnant or a loose end. Mm. And so the old mythological idea is the next word, next world is made from the loose ends of the one that just collapsed. And so the end is the beginning. This is ultimately the myth of the phoenix, you know, in, played yeah. out yeah. In, in its entirety, right? I mean, it's, it's the burning down into yeah. ash, and then from the ashes rises a, a bird of new feathers, yeah. you know. And this is, yeah. this is something that we have to personally experience many, many times in our life as our separate self, the separate self of our identity and our personality it doesn't actually change all that much. People think that our personality, our identity changes, but really actually it dies and is reborn. And that's why it's always so painful to change. It's uncomfortable in the process of actually allowing these things to go down to ash, allowing the, the forest that we've nurtured and cared for and put our energy into to burn. And, and there requires like a little bit of faith to get through the other side, to trust that on the other side, the green shoots will sprout up and there'll be an even healthier ecosystem that we'll be able to thrive in on the other side. Yep. And trust is what people don't have now because people have been putting their trust in the social institutions, in the political theories, in the political process, and that's not working. And so people have lost trust that's one reason people are so divided, I think. There's no story. P people don't even think they're in the same story now. Mm. People think you're not in the story I'm in if you don't agree to the interpretation of the story. And so that creates the lack of trust. And then, you know, then it's a real downhill roll from there. Um, and so then what I suggest is the outer world's not going to be fixed next week, next election. We don't know when it comes back together with more coherence. So then, like you're suggesting, we have to find coherence inside. We have to find a sense of deeper unity inside. And that's a real challenge to modern people who have not been living in story, who have not necessarily been helped to see that there is a deeper self or the soul or something in a person, like you say, after we burn down, there's something that doesn't burn mm. that can fire us back up again, as a matter of fact, a deeper fire, a deeper wisdom that is part of the human inheritance. But most people don't know that now. Most people think they're empty yeah. inside. And that's why they're clinging so hard to things in the outside world. They're afraid that they're empty inside. It seems as if the self can actually model the story for the collective like uh, almost like we first need the story of the self that the self that the self can burn and be reborn you know because there is something i love that as you said unburnable you know the unborn the undying the unburnable 
you know, aspect of our true self, our true, that which is true is always true. That part of us that exists beyond all of the entropy of the world. And so if we can find that within ourself, then we can actually start to really believe it in the collective as well. But in the absence of knowing that in our selfhood, it becomes incredibly challenging to imagine that in the collective and it's still challenging even if you know it in the self to then extend it to the collective but it seems like a prerequisite to actually understand it first as a story of the self and then we can extrapolate that as a collective story i couldn't agree more i've been suggesting here's another way to think about the condition we're in i've been suggesting we're in a collective rite of passage Mm -hmm. humanity is trying to make a passage from um, the divisiveness that has happened uh, from the lack of inclusiveness that is common to another, a passage into a more inclusive, more imaginative, more compassionate version of humanity. But it can happen as a group. It's actually the individual self and soul, like you were saying, that's the old idea. No change in the soul, no change in the world. And so, so now you have the problem of modern people who think we live in an accidental universe um, where things don't really make sense. That's part of the science and the philosophy in the modern world and have not been given the opportunity to figure out that they have this deeper self, deeper soul, uh, have to imagine how does the whole human culture, how does society transform? And then it turns out it can only go from the individual soul. That's where the change happens. Mm -hmm. And then that eventually moves the culture. And that's a, like you say, that's a hard thing to realize. And once you realize it, you actually have more weight and pressure in a funny way. Um, And yet pressure and tension is the pre, uh, the necessary precedent for being creative. Yeah. And so it's a very creative time if you can stand the pressure. The, the pressure actually is a necessary part of the story, right? Like this is a, this is a, a very key part of what, what, must, what must happen is we must feel, we must feel the pressure almost. It's, the, it's this moment in the chrysalis where like it has to get sticky and confined and hot. It, it's what creates, it's the, it's the forge, so to speak for what is emergent you know it is actual heat and the tension of that heat that is required and i think people (laughs) a lot of people would like the end result the butterfly without the chrysalis you know which cannot cannot exist and it's and if you can get that then you can start to re-understand okay maybe instead of lamenting oh woe is me i can't believe this is all happening you could say okay i understand this I know what part of the story we're in. Let's find the beauty in this moment by having that trust, like you said, the trust and the faith of what's to come in the next moment, you know, when we transition through this. And that changes your whole mental landscape. You know, that that's something that when you really get that, you can actually enjoy the heat and enjoy the pressure and know that you are the one who can hold that, you know, for those who for those who are lost and for those who are hurting which so many people are just say like it's okay it's okay and you know we're very mimetic by nature we look to others to see like are we okay it's i liken it to when you're on an airplane 
and that you're experiencing really rough turbulence and maybe you hear some funny sounds in the jet you look over to the the steward and stewardesses and and you look over and you and you look at them and if they look nervous everybody would be really nervous but when they're calm and they're playing their sudoku and it's like oh yeah you know we know we've seen we've seen this before then everybody calms down and uh and i think it's important for those of us who understand the nature of these stories to hold that center and hold that center and say no it's all right like this is how this is how it must be and this is how it will always be and we're going to make it through i think part of the problem comes when if you follow the uh phoenix that's a big descent so the plane doesn't keep going it goes into this big descent which puts everyone in the ashes in in fairy tales they have what they call the ashes time uh and we're in the ashes time we're in the in in the uh, the leftovers of the previous world view and in a sense with the invasion of ukraine we're reliving world war 2 in a sense mm-hmm. i mean the images look like world war 2 all over again so there's a cycling down through aspects of history and on the individual level there's going down into the dark parts of my own self parts that i have to face that i maybe i don't want to face um that's i think one of the big problems is people begin to feel the weight pushing everybody down covid has done that to people people going through isolation confusion and 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 all kinds of things and i think that's where the trouble comes in and so then you have this tension on a psychological level we could say between the ego which can be referred to as the little self and the deep self that you've been talking about and except that it's under pressure and in darkness one of the stories i like to tell now native american story is a story about how healing began and so the first people didn't even know that there was healing they didn't even know that was sickness and when some people got sick no one knew what to do so they ignored them and they began to waste away and start to die and then finally four people went out and stood facing the dark with this problem this weight this inner darkness of not knowing what's going on they didn't even know what sickness was much less what is the sickness and then in this beautiful old story it says the one who made the earth spoke to them and said on the earth for every illness there's a cure for every sickness there's a remedy for every trouble there's a solution and that was the first knowledge they had about the world mm-hmm. and i think we're like those four people that those of us are that are interested those of us that can handle some of the weight those of us that are uh, willing to witness the collapse and look for the shoots that are trying to come up i like those four original people looking into the darkness and i think that's such a challenge to modern western culture like no strategic plan applies you can't make the next strategic plan if you're waiting for knowledge to come out of the darkness mm-hmm. um and so i think it's really challenging in the fact that it's a d- deep descent and in the fact that not knowing is very problematic for the heroic western psyche so this seems like a failure of story it's a failure of story to, which is the story that there's always a solution that we should know and we should be planning two steps ahead it's like the story of the chess player right yeah we all know chess we know we know that we can we're supposed to plan multiple moves ahead and know everything but chess is a is a game with a finite set of rules and a finite set of moves which is ultimately why a computer 
can beat everybody in chess because it can play out all of these different scenarios. Now, it didn't always used to be that case, but by now, computers can beat anybody. And, and it's the same kind of computational analysis of the world, whereas we should be able to algorithmically predict and strategize every other move. But that's the wrong story. And it's the story. And the story has served us in many ways. It's allowed us to create all kinds of incredible technology, all kinds of incredible innovation. But the story that has to be told is a story that, no, 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 actually the descent into darkness is actually dark. It's actually unknown. It's actually invisible to us at this point. And there will be legitimate confusion and and when we have that story we say oh okay so we're not supposed to know we're not supposed to have everything figured out there's going to be something emergent collectively emergent more intelligent than any one person could plan that is going to come out of this of this descent so it's it's reshaping knowledge in a sense going back i love how you keep mentioning story and it's in the ancient stories that these ideas already exist. Uh, the old sense is that um, when something is forgotten in the world, it doesn't disappear. It falls back into story. Um, just the way the basic energy of the world doesn't disappear, it falls back somewhere. And so we almost have to find ways to go back and be willing to stand in the darkness. And if you break not knowing down or learning down, um, we can only learn at the edge of what we know. Not knowing is the only legitimate step to knowing more than I already know. Mm -hmm. And so it's reteaching us, beginner's mind if you want. Uh, but it's really challenging to the Western ego. Ever since the Enlightenment, you know, trying to say we could create everything, we could fix everything. A little bit ironic in a way, because what did the Enlightenment lead to? But figuring out that the world was 84% dark matter, dark energy, and damn black holes. <laughs> so the enlightenment led to darkness. And the, and the collapse of the worldview leads to darkness also. And so there's this kind of real return to the origins of knowledge and the ancient way that people used to be more reverent for the unknown and the unseen. Um, and I think that's a real challenge to the modern world. In one of the stories that I was hearing you tell, you talk about the River Lethe, the river of forgetfulness. And it seems like we have heavy doses of this river of forgetfulness in many ways, sometimes in shot glasses, sometimes in giant gallon jugs, sometimes we're bathing in it. And yeah. But the, the key point that you were making is that on the other side of that is that there is a knowing, there is a knowing that's underneath the forgetfulness right so it's like the the story is actually known and the truth is actually known and it's actually not that we need to discover it it's that we need to remember it so i was hoping maybe you could dive into some of this myth because i think it's very important and it it helps remind us why we should have a little more faith why we can have a little trust because we're not waiting for something new we're actually just trying to remember what we've forgotten well said, yes. So this is ancient Greek mythology also. So the ancient Greeks had the idea that the underworld was right there below our feet, and you could fall into it at any moment, feeling sad or depressed, 
was considered falling into the underworld. And so they had this kind of a dynamic relationship to the underworld, which I find really helpful because in the modern world, you can fall right out of things in a moment when you find out about the latest tragedy or the latest you know, problem from climate crisis, many crises that we're facing. So they had a populated underworld that was the source of knowledge. And there were two rivers in the underworld. Uh, one ran on one side, the river Lethe, uh, lethe is the word from which we get lethal, lethargy. So that's the river of forgetfulness. It was called the river of unmindfulness or the river of forgetfulness. And then on the opposite side, running in the opposite direction, was uh, the river Nemesine. Nemesine is the word from which we get memory. And so it's the river of deep memory. And so all of us at times fall into that lethe, I agree. Uh, it's bottled and sold, uh, you know, and, and wildly consumed <laughs> as a spirit of forgetting. And, and forgetting is necessary at certain points, but there's also the deep remembering. And so the, the river uh, Nemesine uh, would go back to the well of deep memory. And so the, the idea, the old idea in many indigenous cultures is that each person's soul is tied to the soul of the world and has access to the deep well of memory. And, uh, and so there's things inside us that actually know things that we don't know. Um, and then the other important thing about the river Nemesine, or the stream of remembering, is Nemesine was the mother of the muses. And so the muses are all the arts. And so the arts are the antidote to all the forgetting. Mm. Um, and then also the arts, are, uh, the, the daughters of Nemesine are the muses who are the source of inspiration. Muses are from which we get the word musical. Museum means house of the muses. And not only that, we get amusing from the muses. Mm -hmm. So the comedians and the artists and the painters and the writers are all being inspired by the muses. And most people don't even know it. I know artists that don't know that. Um, so people don't realize that in the state of accepting we don't know, um, all of a sudden there's room for the muses to come in and inspire us. Mm. And so there's this whole great river of knowledge that I want to echo what you said. We are here to remember that. And to remember means to bring the members that aren't present into consciousness, members, parts of ourselves, to piece it back together, mm. all that has fallen apart and been forgotten. Mm -hmm. So this is a really powerful time to be alive if a person can accept that it's falling apart. And, it's, and here's another idea that I like that when it's not working, when everything is, seems to be falling apart, there is an acceleration of calling. Having a calling, having a vocation becomes more possible or the message can get through because the instability of the environment, the cracking of the shell of culture allows these messages from the river Nemesine, from memory, from the other world, from the muses, however you want to name it, the things that are not measurable, the things that are the source of creation and even the source of humor can get through more as the things around us become less solid. It seems that this becomes 
obvious when we look at ourselves in a way and again using the self as a model for the for the bigger stories which is a great way to model it obviously doesn't exhaust all of the stories to use the self but it can model the stories and to understand that in our moments in our own dark nights of the soul in those times where we're you know things are challenging and we're heartbroken and things are difficult like what comes out of us usually our greatest art our greatest passions our greatest inspirations and unfortunately we have a culture that is trying to sell us and convince us that we should never go to the underworld oh you're sad depressed heartbroken take this pill do this thing fix this immediately this is not good rather than this other story which is no 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 like this is normal this is what we all do this is the time this is your time in the underworld honor that accept that have your community that can hold the space for you and say yes go explore down there in in hades for as long as you need take as long take as much time talk to as many people down there feel as many things explore as much as you like and we'll be there with you on on the other side as well and potentially even we're willing to go down there with you you know and and be there with you in the darkness and that's compassion really compassion with suffering with someone suffering that's the that's the real root of compassion is like not that oh i feel bad for you let me up here pity you no compassion is i'm with you i'll go down there with you i'll feel what you feel we'll go in this together and then we'll come out of this together and we'll be even more inspired we'll be filled with that that greater level of passion but that's like that's this this kind of key key idea that is not part of our current zeitgeist it's not part of our current cultural story which is you know the descent to the underworld the underworld is bad avoid it at all cost and ameliorate it at all at all at any price whether that's through some drug or some escape or some other thing and and this ultimately creates problems because the cycle the flow of nature can't actually flow the way that it was designed which is like a waveform descends down into the underworld accelerating the heights back into you know the upper worlds yeah part of what's been lost is the whole sense of the regenerative energy of nature uh the recreative or energy uh, of the world so human nature is secretly connected to great nature that was one of the big divisions that happened when western world got fascinated with subject object and pretended that they weren't secretly connected <laughs> and we lost the connection to the to nature and to the earth but our human nature is secretly connected like to those deep rivers and to the deep emotions but especially to this regenerative recreative energy and you said it earlier that we're really supposed to die and be born again and again like when i meet someone who says you know i'm born again and i say yeah keep going <laughs> like it's not one time born again yeah. um in the course of life we're su- the old idea is die before you die that was the old statement mm-hmm. or the irish have a proverb that says that death is the middle of a long life in other words if we don't let the little self die we will die or we'll be back in the zombie form we'll be walking around but not alive african proverb when death finds you let it find you alive mm-hmm. that's what we're supposed to and we're supposed to, so they used to have a division between little death and big death big death comes at the end and it has a finality to it little death death is supposed to happen many times along the way we die a little and we grow a lot mm. this is the time of ashes this is the time of accepting that kind of dying mm. 
uh, dying of the ego so that the self or the soul can expand. Um, another old idea. If you're going through a difficult time or a, a tragic time, um, you're either going to come out a smaller person or a bigger soul. If you come out the same, it wasn't really a tragic time. Mm. It wasn't really a true struggle. Mm. So every time we're in the struggle, we're in the birth canal in a way. And we're either going to come out a smaller person or we let go a bit. We allow that descent. We suffer the darkness. And there is something, according to the old stories, and I'm sticking with them, inside everyone that is really here to be reborn again and again. Mm. And so this is that time, and I really like how you're talking about it. Most people do not get it. Mm. There's a whole bunch, I call it like we're on the threshold. We're in the collective rite of passage on the threshold. And some people are looking backwards, wanting to get back to what they thought was something back there, which really wasn't there anyway. But anyway, some people are looking back and other people are confused walking around on the threshold. And some people are looking forward, trying to get glimpses of where the paths might be. And um, the troubles in the world, from my perspective, are so big. They're called global nowadays. Uh, they're intractable and they're wildly complex. So there's no simple solution. There's no heroic move that makes it better. Um, and it seems to me it's going to take a whole lot of people waking up to who they are inside. I call it finding the inner genius because the genius, the word originally means the spirit you're born with, genius. The genius knows where we're supposed to be going. And so and when enough people realize I'm going to take the chance and follow my genius, some of those people will figure out how to invent medicines. And others know how to help heal rivers and reroot forests and, you know, genius-like. Yeah. And it's going to take a whole bunch of genius activity from many, many people. Um, it's not going to be a new idea. It's not going to be an election or something. From my perspective, that's going to allow this big transition to occur. Many people waking up to why they came into the world to begin with and taking a chance on living that out. And when that happens, it doesn't have to be coordinated completely. We'd have to agree. We can disagree. But if all the genius capacities are in play, you have innovation, you have invention, um, you have new kinds of healing, you have new ideas of how, how to create inclusive communities, and all of a sudden, from the bottom up, from the inside out, you get a change of human culture. And the next thing, someday, someone says, hey, I think we're in the new world. Yeah. So that's what I'm counting on. And, you know, there's what I see a lot of people talk about these forces of control that, you know, they're hypothesizing and creating a lot of stories about. And whether these stories have any validity or not is not my concern. But the stories are that there's forces of control. And it certainly appears that there's those forces of control. But really that's just an externalized extrapolation of our own forces of control our own belief that we need to figure it out and that we'll have the right answers and then the hubris of certain individuals to say actually no you know my genius is better and more important than everybody else's genius so i know the way so if i could just control everybody and get everybody to do what i say then we'll fix the we'll fix the problem and it's Again, just an extrapolation of that personal belief and not trusting in the collective genius to say, 
listen, we need everybody's help. We need everybody to be bright-eyed, open-hearted, wide awake to help us through this time. So let's push everything out to actually lessen the control, to actually give people deeper access to their own genius and allow them to share that and allow them to, to express and sing their sacred song so that the chorus itself will guide us by the hidden hand of what is being remembered. And I think that's really what we're, we're facing here. It's just a poverty of trust and imagination where they're over-indexing their own intelligence and under-indexing that collective creative intelligence of all people to kind of guide us through. No, I, I completely agree with you. And the word imagination is key in the process. I call it a loss of vertical imagination. So humans, in a sense, are uh, born from the earth. We're earthlings, but we're also the descendants of the stars. The ancient idea was humans, human beings are partly in the animal world and partly in the heavens. We're stretched between. We're the most unusual of the animal production, but also we're almost like um, hybrids of the angels, too. And so part of the awakening of a person is supposed to be this greater awareness of this being stretched between the heavens and the deep earth. Um, and when a person gets that, they get vertical imagination. And when a person has vertical imagination, the descent into darkness isn't as scary because you have a, a, a realization that in that darkness, there's a kind of imagination mm. there. And then at the same time, a person can eventually figure out how to handle the heights better, right? Because most people, the first time they go up, Icarus-like, they go too far. And we watch that in modern culture all the time, people rising and falling very quickly. And everything happens quickly now. But that includes people ascending who then fall down really fast. And so the old idea was circulatio that a person in their life goes through the heights and through the depths over and over again in a kind of alchem alchemical cooking of their own psyche. And so at the end of a world of, or end of an era, everything moves faster and faster, so the heights and the lows come quicker. And, and having some knowledge that this is possible, that the human psyche can stretch that way, it can change that way, is really helpful. And when that kind of understanding and imagination isn't there, the world seems not only um, troubled, but it seems dangerous. And that's what I keep hearing from people, that people, people feel overwhelmed, that they feel anxious when they don't know why they're anxious. We have collective anxiety, and it goes back to where we started from. If a person doesn't know that they have a deep self, deep soul, you can use either term, they don't have anywhere to turn to. And so the expectation, as you were saying, is too heavily indexed in the out, outer world. Mm -hmm. This is the time to have an inner life mm -hmm. um, and to have a greater sense of who I am and why, why I came here. And just to put one more turn on it, and you already mentioned it, is that we usually wake up to who we are when we're in the darkest time. The, the, the darkness and, and the weight of sorrow, the weight of and the trouble brought on by fear begins to melt the ego attitude. The realization is, no, I can't fix it. No, I can't even, I'm not even sure I can handle it. 
let go of that a little bit, and then something starts to arise that was waiting to become known. I mean, that's the, that's the old idea. People are not empty. Everyone comes into the world gifted and aimed. And the struggles of life, of life are there to strip away the things that are in the way so that we can realize how we're aimed and what gifts we have to give. Mm. And uh, I think of all, all the young people growing up now, growing into a world that's falling apart, a world that's often upside down, a world that doesn't make sense. There needs to be a different kind of story to- told to young people so that they can navigate or else everybody heads for the river Lethe and says, let's just get lethargic and take whatever we can take to zone out from the, the weight of what we're facing. Right. It seems that one of the challenges that we face is that we've fallen into a trap of either literalizing or trivializing story. And I think one of the things that yourself and even Jordan Peterson does a great job of this and a lot of different individuals do is they start to actually take these stories that may seem trivial. Oh, this is just a Disney movie or this is just a a fable about an animal and this is just something and they'll either trivialize it, which means they don't get the actual deep meaning, the symbolic meaning of the understanding, or they'll literalize it. Like in the case of the Greeks, they might think that the Greeks really just believed that there was an actual place under the ground. If they dug far enough, they'd get down there and there was an actual river and there was an a- two actual rivers and they had to cross it and they had to pay the ferryman Karan with an actual coin. And maybe they did, some of them actually literalize those myths. And I'm not saying that that didn't occasionally occur. And maybe that was actually the norm, but there was, even if so, there was a deeper truth that's underneath the story. It's like that you have to like allow, allow the story to work on you and see beyond what the initial optics of it are to actually understand like this is actually a guiding story. This is a very important story. And we do this with our own Bible. We do this with so many books of stories and tales where we actually don't get to the truth that the story is pointing to. And, and I think that's, you know, one of the important things that storytellers like yourself are offering and so many other people is saying, yes, we need new stories, but we also just need to understand the truth that, that was at the root of, of many of these great stories that have existed in the past without trivializing or literalizing them and find what it really means. Yeah, the, the stories in traditional cultures um, were read psychologically. So the story wasn't a literal map. It was a psychological territory you could enter. And so, yeah, that's a missing thing. There's been a real exaggeration of the value of logic and rationality. So the ancient Greeks had two ways of accounting to the world, and one was called logos, from which we get logic, measuring, weighing, collecting facts, and all that kind of thing. And the other was called mythos, narrative intelligence. And mythos included all of the emotions. And it wasn't just a story. How does the story make me feel? When I tell a story, when you get to have an audience, we haven't had that for a while, but when the audiences come back, uh, I'll tell part of a story and say, where are you in that story? Mm. It's amazing because people are in all different places. You can only meet a story with your life. You know, if there's a dog, and I say there's a dog in the story and I don't describe it, 
People have white dogs and black dogs and brown and spotted dogs and, and hounds and, 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 you know, wieners and everything. <laughs> and, and you have, a, it's, have people listening to the story, they're populating the room with all these animals just because I mentioned dog. And the psyche is so quick and it's so full of, of imagination that we will match as listeners everything in the story. And so, so stories were there to put us in this other world, this mythos, this place where we can feel better our own emotions and actually begin to learn the shapes of our own psyche. Mm. And so I think we have to go back to story. And, and I think the best stories right now are, there's a lot of creation stories, actually this untold number of creation stories. Most cultures, even a tiny tribe, has more than one creation story. The Bible has at least two in it. Um, and so creation is so manifold, it needs lots of stories. But I've been focusing on what I called recreation stories. Stories about how the world renews after it burns down or after it falls apart. And, and I think that recreative energy is what everybody needs to find. But I want to mention one other thing. Um, traditional cultures would have some kind of rite of passage for girls and boys. In a healthy traditional culture, it would be for girls and for boys, and it would happen somewhere after adolescence, what we would call teenage years. And that would be a process that would take each young person out of the family, out of the community circumstances, away from everybody that they know, and put them in ritual circumstances which could be challenging or even ordeals. A famous one, which is easy to access, is a vision quest where you go into nature. All of the old rites were in nature. They weren't in the community, they were in nature. So that what was happening, one of the understanding was each child is being moved from the lap of their mother to the lap of mother nature. It was like a rebirth into a world that was on one hand natural, on the other hand was deeply psychological. Mm -hmm. And so, because each person would have their own vision, they would have their own experience. They would actually realize they were a unique being on this earth, not because of a textbook. They would know it from their own body and their own embodied experience. And then, since everybody's wounded, this is another old idea in stories, everyone that's born is wounded, no family can take care of a child perfectly. That's why everybody leaves home. If you don't leave home, you could remain a child your whole life. And so they would make sure that everybody left home and everybody had this revelatory experience, the revealing of who I am from inside myself. And then there would be some kind of a wound involved, which would be a symbolic representation of the fact that everybody's already wounded and there would be healing that happens so that what we would call adults would be people who had an awakened experience of themselves and had experienced healing mm. um, and compare that to the modern world. Yeah. You get people elected to office of high power who won't admit that they're wounded and who probably never had an awakened experience at all. So we're missing that. So, so when we say, yeah, everybody has genius inside, everybody has imagination, everybody has a meaningful path to be called to, um, 
But most people haven't had the experience of awakening to that. And most people haven't had early life uh, traumas and, and wounds healed in any way. So what looks like adults are really people in big bodies with very early life traumatic disorders um, and often a lack of genuine sense that my life has meaning. Mm. And that makes it really hard to change a culture, much less salvage people. Mm. Yeah, I credit so much of my own life path and my own who I am from uh, vision quests that I went on when I was 18, just finishing high school, going off to college. And my dad had the sense to send me off with a, with a shaman in, in the mountains of New Mexico. And I spent, you know, it was, it was spent a couple days in a hut and uh, the shaman gave me some psychedelic mushroom tea, some psilocybin tea and left me out there in in the wild and it was a stormy wild night i'm in this in this hut and everything was different after that you know and my i i emerged from that hut i was up all night you know huddled by the fire and just every aspect of my entire life experience up to that point that was a line of demarcation and i've had many of those moments subsequently but that first one you know, showed me the power of these of this rite of passage. And it doesn't mean that everybody has to follow the exact same path that I did. Of course not. But these these the rites of passage cannot be cannot be underestimated or overstated in their importance because it's absolutely crucial. And I I know personally that I wouldn't be a fraction of what I am, who I am on the inside and the outside, because the inside and the outside mirrors each other if it wasn't for the for that early moment and i think you're spot on yeah they don't mirror each other until you're cracked open right so that was the whole idea was the person got cracked and psychologically what's being cracked is the ego mm -hmm. the little self that thinks it knows where it come from or drives a car or owns property whatever gets cracked and it gets open, and then you realize the movement of the stars and the, the nature of the storm and whatever animals are showed up and whatever dreams came are real because there's nothing interfering with them. And that healing is possible because you survived the ordeal and you feel better for having had the ordeal. Mm. So I think what happens is everybody has the ordeals anyway. You know, if I have a big audience and I'll say, you know, how many people have felt separated from everybody, either because you were sick and had to go to the hospital and leave your friends and family, or because someone you loved died and you were thrown into the, the world of death when other people are just walking around normally, or you got arrested, or you went to war, whatever it was. How many people have had, that's called separation. Mm -hmm. and, and all the hands go up, and sometimes two hands are going mm -hmm. up. Everybody's had it. But it wasn't handled like a ritual experience. It wasn't framed like you were saying about stories. It, it, their own sto story wasn't made real. Yeah. And so people are carrying wounds that are like initiatory experiences that will keep happening. The psyche wants to transform. The soul is here to transform. And so we keep going through separation experiences until it starts to be a separation that unifies. And, and then I'll ask people, that's the first step of a rite of passage is separation. Literally, they used to separate the young person from family, from community and everything, literally. And then they would psychologically also hopefully grasp it 
And then the second stage is usually called the ordeal, um, the challenge or the ordeal. And so then I'll ask an audience, how many people have had an ordeal? And I'll name the kinds of ordeals, you know, losing a career, finding a career, whatever it is. And then hands go up. And then the third step is a return to a knowing community that recognizes and understands that you have become a different person because of the separation and the ordeal. And I'll say, how many people have had that? And hardly any hands go up. And the ones that go up, you really can't trust. I'm joking. <laughs> what, I mean, what I mean is some people will claim everything. Of course. Uh, but what happens, uh, and, and when you were talking about the, uh, the vision quest, the, the last step of it is to come back to the elders or some knowing people who have been through mm -hmm. it, and they help the person understand the story is told. Here's what happened, and the night and the storm came, and here's the fears I had, and then I had a dream. And they give this visionary, personal experience of the other world. They give the story of that to the ones who have been through it before, who hopefully know enough to be able to help interpret it and figure out a way to carry it. And so then after that, those people are different. They were considered different people. They were awakened. Yeah. And everybody awakens to who they are because each person is unique. That's nature only makes originals. <laughs> and so the other thing missing in the modern world is people don't know. Each person born is a unique being. You know, no tree, trees are the same. No two cedar trees are the same. No two flowering bushes are the same. No human soul is the same. And it's that uniqueness that really allows us to say, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. Maybe I've never seen it before. Maybe people say it can't be done, but I'm going to do it because this unique quality knows where it wants to go. And so when you have a culture that doesn't have that, you have people that look grown up and they're not very grown. Yeah, it's a poverty of elders, of elders being that there's there's older people, but an elder is is gained wisdom, has been on the path of wisdom throughout their life and that's such an essential part and and it's, you know, it's our job to to become those elders, you know, to help and be and and be them and and be on the path so that we can be the elders that lead the people of this next world through these initiations and they can come to and say like hey, it's all falling apart. And we can say, ah, yes, I know the falling apart and I know the putting back together. Come here, my child, you know, like, let's, let's, talk, let's talk about this, you know? And this is, I think, and yeah. not that that doesn't exist. I've been with many great, great, great elders, you know, my different spiritual teachers and different, you know, my, grand, my grandmother was an elder in a way, you know, I was very, very lucky. I didn't have any grandfathers in my family, but I've been around them, but there's not, that's not the most common thing. A lot of times people, like you said, they've never gone through their own rites of passage, transformation, the understanding of story and culture to be able to guide us. And I think it's, it's on us now to, to become that, to become that, that class of the class of, of people, which is very, very important, which is with the wise ones, you know, the, the real wise ones. So then a couple of things come to mind. One is the old idea is um, the old Greek word for wisdom means dark knowledge. So wisdom is knowing darkness and light. Wisdom isn't knowing all the bright stuff. It's understanding the darkness, the shadow, the loss, and the light, the recovery, and the brilliance. So that's the first thing. You want old you want elders who have fallen down mm -hmm. hard <laughs> and have figured out how to get up. Amen. 
That's what you want, right? And so the elders are surprising. They're not like... uh, they're not like the elected ones, you know, the ones who get elected, and and they're not like um, the perfected ones. That you know, like the 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 word mentor enters the Western world through the Odyssey, the story of the Odyssey in the first book of the Odyssey, and mentor is an old sailor who is wandering on the beach at the same time when the young prince, recognize, you know, representing all youth youths, who's lamenting the collapse of the world around him. And, and wailing and lamenting by the ocean, by the shore, and they come together. The old sailor, the old salt, and the young wounded person come together. And, uh, and so it's interesting that he's a sailor, which means, you know, the old saying is, uh, smooth seas make bad sailors, mm-hmm. right? If you're going to learn sailing, you've got to be in the rough water, or when the rough water comes, you'll go down. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the mentors are those who have been down. So when the young person says, I made a big mistake or I'm, I'm really down, a genuine, I know what you mean. And, it, you know, you don't have to prove it. You can feel it when someone is meeting you in that space. So to me, the, the elders are that mixture of deep experience of pain and, and having worked with that. And then whatever brilliance is natural to their own psyche. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but one other thing that's interesting, so, so I've studied all these different cultures, you know, particularly studied rite of passage in order to figure out what had happened to me. That's how I got into it. And um, so I found uh, a tribe in Africa, a small tribe, and just a, two paragraphs in a book about how they see the initiation. And they said, um, when we're initiating young people, we're waking the elder or the sage in them. Brilliant idea that there's an inner sage that gets awakened in the rite of passage. And they say, and when we're initiating the elders, we're reviving the eternal youth in them. I just dropped the book right there and said, wow. <laughs> yeah. Can I join this tribe? Yeah. And so, but, but, but we're in that tribe. And so psychologically, it's called the puer eternus. The, the eternal youth is inside everybody, and the old sage is inside everyone. And to me, that's valuable, because it, to me, the elders, on it's not a person. It's a condition, right? To be youth, the youth is a condition. You know, there's not a person who is actually youth. Yep. It's a condition, the youthful condition. The elder is the elder condition. Yeah. It comes and goes. And, and, and that allows the elders to fall asleep a lot and still be elders. Mm-hmm. But also, it means that everybody is really walking around with their inner youth, still carrying the dream of their life, and a sage potential, at least, uh, that can kick in at various times. And I like the idea of seeing it as an inner dynamic as opposed to a, a person, because the elders have done a lot of damage. People who stood as the elders in religions, stood as the elders in certain tribal situations, and then became the heavy hand mm. of knowledge, or the heavy hand of, of wisdom. And the idea that as we get older, we're also, also supposed to get younger. Mm. And when we're younger, there's a wise part of us 
that is present also. At least I like that. And the flexibility, the flexibility, the pliability of a young tree versus an old tree, right? It's those both inborn yeah. inborn qualities. It's a beautiful yeah. way to look at it. The deep roots of the elder feeding the sprouting branches of the next version of the tree. Yeah. And so like in working with young people, and I've, we have our organization Mosaic, which where we've done decades of mentoring. And, and the project is always be with the most as ri- at-risk people. And, and one reason for that is young people really deserve some help when they're lost for whatever reasons. And in the modern world, young people are often lost. And so the whole project was aimed at that. Um, and so then it turns out that when someone is lost, they're closer to being found than, pe- than people that think they know where they're going. Right. Right. <laughs> so that was an interesting thing to find out. And, and you find out that when people have fallen out of culture, they're ready to step into something else. And so there's a whole lot of learning at that edge that we went through. But one of the things that was beautiful to learn about was how mentoring is this dynamic where, in theory, mentor, as in the original story, is the old sailor who's been around, the old salt, knows what's going on. Um, But what happens in the process of mentoring is sometimes the younger person knows better what the next step is. And that's just an amazing thing because then you're seeing the old salt in the young person or the hidden sage in that young person. And so mentoring is this wild exchange on a psychological level. And the other thing I learned about it that was also amazing was, um, so we were doing these projects and and working with youth, mostly in uh, poor communities Mm -hmm. all around the country. Um, And then there's times where I would feel overwhelmed or I was overworked or I didn't know, or I was afraid I didn't know the next step, only to have the young people involved, you know, first of all, say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have to be okay because we're listening to you and we're following your steps. And then second of all, so they encourage me, take a step, we'll back you up. And then also have them suggest or get a vision of the next step and realize, wow. They don't know it, but they were seeing ahead of themselves and ahead of me. And you realize what a beautiful uh, way to learn, what a beautiful way to grow. Mm. And so I think that's part of the next world that we're going to try to find. Mentoring is the original, organic form of teaching and learning. And I think it's due for a comeback. So meet the mentor. This is a classic level in the hero's journey. And I'm very familiar with the hero's journey and I'm less familiar with, there's a kind of a school of critique of the hero's journey that the hero's journey only takes us so far and that the story is limited. And I haven't gone down that and explored the critique of the hero's journey. And, but I'm interested to just hear from you because the hero's journey story seems pretty solid to me. You know, I've been able to map the different levels and I know there's different versions, but the, the classic 12 levels of the hero's journey and it's been very potent as a guiding story for myself and a lot of the people that I know. But what are your thoughts on the hero's journey story as something to guide us and where is it potentially lacking or where could it use an update and uh, in general? Well, it's a great story. And, and as Joseph Campbell wrote, it has universal application. Mm-hmm. 
hero stories abound in all cultures. Um, but there's a, there are a couple of problems, I think. Mm-hmm. So I remember the first time I read Hero with a Thousand Faces, Campbell's book on it, long time ago. And very early on, um, he says two things that are important. One, he says he got the ideas from um, a book called Rites of Passage um, by a, a, a Dutch anthropologist whose name is escaping me in the moment. So he says that, that this framework came from that, that work. Um, it's a book called Rites of Passage. Mm-hmm. And so that's interesting. In other words, he wasn't shaping it simply from looking at stories. He actually had picked up this framework which is a rite of passage framework. So that's, that's amazing all by itself. Happens really early, and I'm going like this because it's, it's like the bottom of the first page. <laughs> and then he says um, that this is the monomyth, and that's where I think it goes wrong. Mm-hmm. There is no monomyth. <laughs> Myth by its nature is multiple. Soul is multiple. Nature is multiple. Monomyth is like uh, getting falling under the spell of monotheism, Mm -mm. you know, which is, so the idea that there's one story or one way is a certain mindset. Mm -hmm. So Campbell apparently got that from James Joyce. So Campbell was a big student of James Joyce. And and James Joyce was doing this wild rewrite of of history and mythology, right? Because his first big book is Ulysses. Mm -hmm. He's rewriting the Odyssey. But he's writing it with poetic, wild imagination. And so he referred to the monomyth, but he was being ironic. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) So Campbell picks the idea up from the poet, Joyce, and doesn't quite get the irony. Mm -hmm. I worked with Joseph Campbell briefly, and that does seem possible to me, that he missed that irony. (laughs) So, So what I want to say is it's not the only story. It's a fantastic story. Um, the other thing that's so interesting about it that you probably know it because you've really studied it, um, not that many pages onward, he says, after a person responds to the call that awakens the hero, they fall into a descent. He says it right there. And so when people imagine the hero part of it, they often leave out the descent. Mm-hmm. And that's critical because that means that the person is stripped bare, going down. And so you get the psyche awakening, not the ego taking charge. So hero in the modern Western world is a problematic problematic idea. Like when someone says, I I alone can fix it. Right. The message there is don't vote for that. (laughs) That, that's, That's mania. Yeah. That's mania. That's heroicism supported by narcissism. Right. Um, and so, so that's, you, you watch what happens to the hero in the Hollywood movies as it goes on and on. It gets more exaggeratedly muscular, it gets more violent, and so on. And so there, there's that kind of problem. Um, so I wrote a book called The Genius Myth. And what I was trying to do was tap an old Western root and, and see it differently. Mm-hmm. And so... Genius, I mentioned already, means the spirit that's already there. So when a person is born, they're born with the spirit. Um, The other word for that spirit is genius. 
And it doesn't mean everybody's a genius. It means everybody has some genius. And genius refers not to the highest talent or the greatest IQ. It refers to a giftedness that's natural to that person. So my concern about the hero's myth is people could be moving away from their own deep interior. Mm. My other concern would be that it's too masculine, perhaps. And it seems to leave out the, those people who can't measure up to heroics. Mm. Genius means everybody has gifts, everybody has aim, and they already have it. You don't have to go find it. You have to awaken to it. That's ultimately what the hero story says, but it's not how it's understood. Um, so that in, in, like in the modern world, like recently when they had the Olympics, I like that everybody's going for the gold, but it's pretty literal. Yeah. Like if they don't get the gold, they didn't do it. Well, no, failing to get the gold could be a great thing. Sure. Joseph Campbell was in the last tryouts to be a, a runner at the Olympics. He was in the race that decided uh, who was the winner of that race was going to join the Olympic team. He was going for the gold. And I remember being at this uh, um, conference after Joseph Campbell died to honor Joseph Campbell. And I was on a panel and, and someone asked a biographer, uh, what did, did Joseph Campbell have regrets? And the biographer said, yeah, he regretted that as he was running this race and he was going to be on the Olympic team, he looked back to see if anybody was close to him and someone passed him and beat him and he didn't get on the team. That was his big regret. And everybody went, oh, and I went, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. One moment is Orpheus, cost of his whole <laughs> Olympic dreams. Yeah, if, you're, if your genius is to become you know, the only and, and best known mythologist in the Western world looking back makes a whole lot of sense. <laughs> and so, look, so in looking back, he became Joseph Campbell. Yeah. In winning the Olympics, he might have become somebody else. Indeed. It's a different story. Indeed. It was a really interesting discussion. Um, so, um, so I think the error that I see is calling it the monomyth. And then saying that all stories follow that. No. I mean, because I, I try to imagine the way we've been talking about the world and all of the damage in the world. It takes so much genius to fix that. It, sh it can't be restricted to a certain kind of person. It has to be, you know, each girl that's born, each child that's born that winds up being transgendered. You name it. The psyche is as multifaceted as the forest with all of its strange plants. That's what we're part of. That's what we're supposed to be rejoining. And so there has to be many, many stories. And a lot can be learned from the hero's journey. And then there are other stories that go in different ways. In mythology, there are many other stories. Mm. And so I think, I think the hero's journey was a good fit for contemporary Western psyche. And, and it's the only story that's ever been mythologically known in the whole culture since I've grown up. I mean, it's amazing. There isn't any other story that, where you, if you man, mention it, people will go, oh, yeah, I get it. And there has to be other stories. Yeah. Because not everybody's going to fit into that journey. Sure. There's so many strange journeys, you know. So that's my only uh, trouble with it. The tendency to turn something into the doctrine of how it's done when if the primary 
initial imagination is everyone is unique, then that means there's going to be unique steps in that person's initiation and in their journey. And there has to be room for that. Yeah. And, and especially when the world is so heavy and so tragic, to have each young person be able to imagine that what they're looking for is already inside them. And they might find it by looking inside. They may not get the opportunity to follow it into the world like most people see the hero's journey. Mm. So that's my my on it. That's beautiful. It makes me uh, quite eager to read your read your book, The Genius Myth, and uh, and yeah, and and actually understand that as a, as a different story because I totally agree with you. And this idea of our unique self and our unique genius, this is deeply rooted in in uh in my own personal belief system how like that's what exactly what we're here to do is to live our unique name self the story that's woven into our dna woven into our into our true self and without which the whole universe cosmos god would be incomplete without us singing this song and adding it to the chorus while meanwhile we're just so busy trying to copy somebody else's song or copy somebody else's story that we're not being you're not being the original that nature intended us to be and so of course like we all have our own iterations and variations of that story and trying to collapse everything into one story uh is just goes against this deep deep you know first principle of understanding of who we are so i applaud you for you know creating uh the flexibility and the framework to offer some new stories and hopefully more can emerge as new stories are needed you know i think that's i think that's really yeah. important well i learned it from working with young people that were in trouble and just realized wow they have to be met where they are mm. you know I'm, we're working with gang kids and, and and i remember working in chicago with uh, latino gang kids and and people always trying to say to them you know you really have a future and you just watch their reaction, you know. They don't believe it. They don't trust that. There's no evidence given to them. But I noticed another thing. They didn't have a past. Um, they had been separated from their own past. They, their, their world, uh, La Vida Loca, the crazy world, the street world, because they didn't have a connection to their own uh, Latin roots in a way. Right. Um, and so you can't get a future if you don't have a past. And so what we did, began doing, well, we always do that anyway, but is working with the past, you know, telling stories that could come from their past and seeing how that feels. And in order to have a future, you have to have an integrated past. Mm. And so, um, so you start to learn how erroneous it is to bring a fixed message into a fluid situation and how mistaken it can be to miss the opportunity to meet a young person or any person where they exactly are. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Ikkyu, the um, Zen poet, sometimes called the criminal monk. He was, he was a rascal, favorite. but one of my favorites. He said, you can't help but be who you are and where. <laughs> That's the step yeah. we're talking about before being willing to not know and be in the darkness. That's the step of the journey where we are and the only place we can come from. We can't help but be who we are, which is a reference to that uniqueness inside and where we are. So that talks about forgiveness. That talks about acceptance. That's what we learn working with young people. Mm.
accept them as who they are, where they mm -hmm. are, and then let them indicate what it is they need right now. They might not need future. They might need past. Mm -hmm. They might not need challenge. They might need healing. And all this, you know, that began to open up a lot of roads. And then I noticed what stories they would respond to. That was, that's really interesting. And young people are looking for stories. They're looking for stories. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We all are. Everybody. We all are. All right. I have to, I can't, I cannot resist. And I'm going to trust my own desires for mm -hmm. this because there's a story that I don't understand. And I haven't, I haven't earnestly attempted to understand it, but it's been implanted in my psyche for a long time. And it started when I, I studied a lot of classical, classical mythology, but I went to Villa Borghese in Rome and they have a Bernini statue um, of Ilrata Persephone, the rape of Persephone. And Hades is grabbing the goddess, Hades, the god of the underworld, is grabbing the goddess of spring. And it is one of the most spectacular pieces of art, if not the most spectacular piece of art I've ever seen. I just walked around it for hours. I mean, the ways that his hands are melting into her flesh that's carved out of marble and it looks so soft and, and everything about it is just stunning. It's a stunning piece of art. And it gets me curious to ask you, like from a mythological, mythopoetic standpoint, what is the story of Hades and Persephone and, and, and taking her down to the unworld and bring, and then allowing her to emerge as spring. And, and what is, what is this myth actually pointing to? What is, what is it trying to tell us? Well, the first thing I would say is to realize it's a mystery. So the ancient peoples in Rome, Italy, and Greece, and, and many other places understood that we're living in a mystery. In the world of modern science, there's the, almost the pretension that everything can be solved. Mm -hmm. uh, but they exclude the mysterious things usually. <laughs> they leave them out. They don't bring them into the laboratory. Let's bring, you know, Persephone into the laboratory to see what happens. No, <laughs> they take things that they can work with and they leave the rest outside. And so the ancient people were in the mystery. And so this is a tricky one. And, and, and one of the things that, that gives, you know, the, the warning sign is the word rape. Mm -hmm. um, which comes from rapacious and is related to raptor birds and all kinds of, you know, every word is its own story. Mm -hmm. But in the modern world, I think we have to be careful because rape is a very common thing. And in particular, um, women getting raped and abused sexually and so on. So it makes it even hard to talk about. And I think the first level of consideration has to be... Um, understanding the damage being done by actual rape, sure. literal sure. rape, uh, and, and, and sexual abuse. Because what happens there is someone is pulled into the underworld by the wrong person at the wrong time for the wrong reason. It's like you said earlier, a literalizing of a myth. Mm -hmm. And so it's extremely destructive, and it's strangely a negative initiation that often is left unfinished. Yeah. Yeah, for so sure. the wound is wide open. Sure. All right, so that has to be said. Mm -hmm. So then, then it also seems to me important to figure out who is Persephone. So it's not a woman, no. just the way Hades isn't a man. And, and nowadays you have to say that because people used to understand that you're sculpting these things because you're making a physical, artful representation of an unseen, imaginal, mythical thing. 
and then you're putting it in the center of a fountain as if to say this story is like a fountain that will keep telling itself which is the nature of myth. And so they actually knew what they were doing. And then you put that story in the middle of the square and you give the square a name that reminds everybody there is an underworld. And by the way, you could get pulled down there today. Mm. I mean, they knew what they were doing. And nowadays you have that lack of imagination a lack of mythological grasp. Mm. So um, sometimes you can see what a story is about by looking at it from the end. And so... Persephone winds up being the, the person, the, the, the entity who spends half the world, half the year in the underworld and half the year in the upper world. She's a goddess of both worlds. She's a representation of the mystery embodied, the capacity to understand the darkness in the deep world and the capacity to be resplendent in the upper world. That, so if you look at that at the end, then, the word rape has a different meaning, it, it, and really dangerous because of the literalization of sexual desire and all the things that are wrong in contemporary society. And then Hades is one of the gods of the underworld. And so usually the story is uh, Persephone, or there were, it wasn't just Persephone, there were many figures just as there were the eternal youths, the Adonis and, and all of the, the ones that could do all the youthful male things, there was a whole number of the young female figures um, who would fall under the term Kore, K-O-R-E, which meant the eternal feminine. And um, so, so she's the, so usually she's uh, in a field somewhere and she sees a flower she has never seen before. And it's when she reaches for that flower that Hades pulls her down. And so there, there's really mysteries there. There's deflowering, but it's not supposed to be literal. Mm-hmm. It's psychological. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it represents in a funny way the fact that the feminine knows the underworld as well as the upper world, and often better than the masculine characters. Um, and if Hades is also death, then it tells you that a sudden recognition of the fact that death is in the world pulls her down. I mean, there's lots of ways to open it up, but it is not about ma- uh, male and female. Right. That's the, the literalizing collapse of imagination in the modern world. Um, so she, so this is also in a strange way, if one is careful, it becomes part of the initiation or rites of passage for, for the girls to become women. Mm -hmm. So really complicated, really mysterious, really misunderstood. For instance, um, the, the part of the rite of passage for a girl is to realize that Women, in a sense, carry death and birth inside themselves. So for the period of time from when the menses start until the menses stop, menopause, from menstruation until menopause, during that period, roughly speaking, a woman will have death pass through her body every month with the menses. The menses are washing out you know, generally speaking, two eggs 
that could have been fertilized and become humans. Mm -hmm. And so death is moving through, tied to the moon, which goes through its phases, including the darkness of the moon, and 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 the the inner dynamic of the woman is tied to that. Um, and then um, the moon fills again, and the same body that had had death moving through it gathers vitality again, and then there are more eggs that could become humans. Yeah. So that's part of the inner life of a woman, which is totally misunderstood and usually feared by the masculine. Mm -hmm. Women have an amazing power. They contribute, they grow people inside, and they give birth to full-formed human beings. It is a mystery. It is a wonder and not something that men can do. And so, you know, when you see the big battle in, in the United States for a minute, for instance, between pro-life and pro-choice, the solution to that is to have women really talk about their own psyche and their own body. It's really, it shows the division of the culture that those two thi things can't be seen as what actually is inside a woman all the time. Mm -hmm. I hope I'm making Absolutely. sense. Tricky stuff. Absolutely. It I think one of the reasons I potentially might have been guided to this is there's if if spring itself, which represents life, it's life. It's the it's the goddess being born again. You know, Mother Earth. It's Mother Earth sprouting and flowers and life and life force itself, and Hades being the shadow masculine in certain in certain aspects. You know that is dr that is driving this world destroying the world polluting the oceans driving us into the underworld pulling literally pulling persephone pulling life into the underworld and that it's in some ways obviously get moving beyond and, and it was i'm so glad you made that distinction and it's an important one about the literalization of it but moving beyond that like even if the goddess gets pulled down if the goddess gets pulled down into the underworld like she will rise again, like she will rise again in another cycle and and bring back forth that life. And so in some ways it feels like culturally we're going through this moment where we've been, we've been in this kind of just taking, taking, taking of, of and, and disrespecting of the earth and the feminine principles of the earth and, and brought that into the underworld in many ways and in bringing that and then the emergence the emergence of the feminine and the life force principle is going to bring the new spring you know that's that's coming it's, it seems like we could almost look at this as from a cultural lens of one of these other renewal stories of the descent then ultimately leading to the revivication yeah and, and part of the tricky thing is so part of, the, of that is to for women Women aren't identical with the feminine Correct. or identical with the goddess, just as men are not Zeus or, you know, that kind of, that's a, a real tricky, false Yeah, disambiguating gender from actually masculine and feminine principles. Yeah, yeah. And so when you literalize it, then, you know, you get these guys who want to throw lightning bolts everywhere if they think <laughs> they're Zeus. And, uh, and so that you don't want that to be happening. But women actually know this cycle, and they have this, uh, they are born into this embodied sense of life and death. The earth is womb and tomb, womb and tomb. That's the nature of it. And so, it's a, so 
I like to look at things backwards, get at the end mm-hmm. and look back. So if we say we're going to have another, another world and it's not going to be the same as the last world. So then if we get in that place and look back, everything that's wrong with the world as it exists now is symptomatic of what will be trying to happen. So if the world that we've had so far has become dominated by exaggerated masculine energy, uh, the need to dominate things, muscular approaches, mostly men in charge, however you want to talk about it. It's not, you know, I don't know how to break it down exactly. Then the next world has to, has to have a resurgence of the feminine. Mm-hmm. It has to have a renewal of the understanding. I remember someone saying to me, I was on stage carrying on, you know, and, and someone, uh, a woman in the audience said, how come you're up there like by yourself? Why isn't it you with a woman? It's a really good question. It was a good challenge. But I said, I am up here with a woman. And she said, where? And I said, inside. Mm. <laughs> In other words, uh, the only way we could understand the stories is that we can morph and we can secretly relate to the characters in the story. And so there is something feminine inside men that becomes real essential, that it become an awakened thing, because from there comes the respect for the feminine and for women who embody it more than men, let's say. And the word respect means to look again, respectare, not to see it, not to see that statue in some simplistic, literal way. I know you're not doing that, but it means to look at it again. And then it means to look at it again and again, Mm -mm. to keep seeing, you know, because I noticed that that statue is in the fountain. And and so they're saying that, hmm, so archetypes, which is another way to look at the feminine, the masculine, Hades, the goddess, their archetypal forms. Um, so they used to say an archetype is like a river, like a riverbed. And sometimes the water is flowing through that riverbed and sometimes it dries up. And so the archetypes that have had water flowing through them may not be the best archetypes for the next version of the world. And, there, and certainly the feminine has to make a comeback um, as the proper mystery that it is. Mm-hmm. And then that allows the masculine to become its mystery, mysterious self again, as opposed to its over-identified, over-rationalized, over-muscularized, over-predetermined self. Um, in Irish myths, there are great stories in Irishmen. Irishmen have a lot of humor in them, and they have a lot of irony in them. And so there's a story in which, and the Irish have lots of heroes, but their heroes are not just spear throwers. Like one of their greatest heroes is a poet who can pronounce things that other people might think but can't say. That's a big hero. So their idea of hero is really multifaceted. And um, so anyway, there's a story when all the heroes have gathered to take on some big quest, you know, probably a battle, but they don't feel heroic. And they encounter a bunch of uh, poisonous sheep and they become afraid of those sheep. And so all the heroes climb the trees in order not to be bitten by the poisonous sheep. And for a period of time, they're all up in the trees experiencing their own fear. And they're saying to each other, you're, you know, you're a power. Go down and deal with it. And they're, and, and they're saying, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. <laughs> and so it tells you something, first of all, that to be a man doesn't mean that you're up for everything all the time. 
And second of all, I thought it said that to be a man is to be able to discuss your fears. Mm -hmm. To be a hero is to be able to say that you're afraid and discuss your fears. And so, and I just found this great, I love that part of the story. It doesn't tell you how long they're up there, but <laughs> none of them will go down. And they all have these great skills. And so, um, so anyway, that's why there needs to be lots of stories. And there needs to be uh, a, a realization that there is, has been an imbalance in the world. I think you said it. When people depreciated the feminine, they almost automatically depreciated the earth. Because yeah. feminine, earth, mother earth, all aligned together archetypally. And so we have to revision the earth itself and the fact that we're earthlings. Yeah. And, um, and so I think the next worldview would have to be more inclusive of diversity of all kinds and more inclusive of the feminine mystery and therefore ultimately more respectful to each girl becoming a woman. I mean, I mean one of the heartbreaking things to me happening in this culture is how, um, how much sexual abuse is happening in universities as well as everywhere else. And it goes back to initiation. In there's a certain type of uh, initiation for girls in Africa, um, where after they go through a period of isolation, um, where they're only fed food by the elder women of the tribe, and they're also fed stories, and they through that they become, you know, a woman, mm -hmm. go from being a girl to a woman, and then they're brought back to the whole tribe, and everybody has to be there, and the kids and the elders, everybody comes out. And they've been given this uh, girdle that's made of uh, shells from the depths of the sea that have been woven by the elder women of the tribe. And so it's like a skirt or a, or a, a girdle. And it's not an accident that the shells are from the depth of the ocean. It's trying to say something about the depth of the feminine. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so that she appears, the girl, all by herself, but she, now she's a woman and she has this girdle on, and she's introduced to everybody as a new person. Mm. And usually they have a song and they sing to her. And then at some point, she raises one hand up and the other down, and she says something like, I am the daughter of the stars, and I'm also the daughter of Mother Earth, and I am imbued with both these energy, and I am to be respected for that. And I will... I, I, hmm. I forget exactly what she says, but it's something like, before someone can touch me, I have to remove the girdle myself. So she's wearing this protection of the ancient sea and the stars and the song and the tradition of the tribe mm -hmm. and saying, respect her mm -hmm. and respect that she knows when she wants to share aspects of herself or her body or whatever mm -hmm. it is. And so I think, you know, how different university would be if that was happening, if that, if the vision question. And even before, you know, I mean, even before that. And even before. Yeah. yeah. And because how do you get that back? How do you get that trust back? It has to be by recollecting, remembering the mystery, remembering the intense beauty that is the soul of each person. Yeah. You know, because each one of those girls has their own genius. I mean, one of the good things that happened in the modern world is you do see girls and women 
being accepted in many different areas of, of social life and social work and so and on. And also and also the feminine principles in the masculine being accepted. You know, like a, more so. Yeah, you know, like men who share their feelings and can express emotions yeah. which used to be stifled, like this is now much more celebrated. So again, disambiguating feminine from gender the the rise of the feminine is happening and it doesn't mean that you have to discard the masculine i also think this is a sticky trap it's saying like it's not saying get rid of your masculine it's saying just bring your feminine bring your feminine to meet your masculine in its strength you know and i think that's one of the yeah. things that that also people have need a new story to guide them with which is not like masculine is bad sure there's toxic masculine of course we get it but it's not that the masculine itself is bad the masculine principle is important just as the feminine principle is important is how do we awaken these both yeah. both wings of the bird of our soul like how do we awaken both so that we can all fly you know and and, and really agree, celebrate that and part of that is this realization of the mystery this this mystery of life and death moving through women mm -hmm. in a different way than what it happens in men. And so those, those rites of passage would also be different. And, and then when you say, earlier you were saying we, we don't have the elders that we need, and what happens in my observation of um, the female and feminine side of things in modern culture is as a woman gets older, she gets less respected. The, the images of the wise old woman are there less so than at least the some of the images of the wise old men. And so the imagination of the feminine is trapped in the beautiful, young, youthful part mm -hmm. of the feminine. Mm -hmm. um, and so, th and then they realize how much wisdom is lost, mm -hmm. how much mystery is lost. Um, you know, in, in Spain, I went to Spain when I was younger because I wanted to see and feel flamenco. I wanted to understand it. I wanted. I just wanted to be bathed in flamenco, mm -hmm. and 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 then you. So then you're looking for the authentic flamenco rather than the showtime flamenco, and that became the journey. So that I don't think that was a hero's journey. I think I just <laughs> it was like a flamenco journey, right, and right. so and I finally finally wound up in this place where they were having a contest um, uh, for the women flamenco singers and dancers. And so, you know, they come out and they do that stomping, mm -hmm. fantastic stuff. And the stomping is to call up the spirit of the earth. That's what's happening. It's like sounding the surface of the earth like a drum to awaken the earth spirit. And so the competition was that the different dancers would come out and, and then stomp the earth and do their dances. It was profound. Wow. I mean, you could stay there your, your whole life. Wow. And then after a whole number of them had done it, done their dance, out comes this old woman. who, And you go, wow, she doesn't look quite as, you know, uh, okay, how's she going to do? And she very slowly, with the most amazing kind of uh, uh, musical tension of her body, does the same gestures, but she does them with this authority and this elegance that is beyond what anybody had already done and she wins the whole contest because <laughs> wow. she, she had duende. They call it duende, the connection to the dark spirit of the earth, duende. She understood her own body. She understood the earth. And it was such a display of where that feminine goes. It was, it was beautiful and mind-boggling and accurate as hell. 
And no one complained. Everybody went, yeah, that was the duende. Mm. And it doesn't mean it can't happen in a younger woman or a person. But anyway, we've lost those measures. I mean, there's a real contest where it's not that you have the best voice, is that you brought the most earth through your body vocalization. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's not, it's, you know what I mean? And, and so what is being honored, what is being sought is more mysterious, you know, than what people imagine at this point. Yeah. So, you know, it anyway. reminds me of my, you know, my wife is, um, is half Hawaiian and her mother is Hawaiian and, so she grew up Tahitian dancing. So my wife, you know, gorgeous in the full flower of her gorgeousness and beauty and an amazing dancer. And she can shake her hips and move her body in ways that are just mind-blowing and stunning. And so she'll do a little Tahitian dance when we have a family gathering. And then her mother will drop into a hula. And the way that she moves her body slowly in this hula, like embodying the literal spirit of Hawaii, as if Hawaii came and moved itself to right there in her heart and in her in her soul and in her essence. And then you all get to, everybody gets to transport there and everybody just starts weeping, you know, just, just really weeping. And what this really makes yeah. me think is, <clears throat> sometimes I think, we can get lost in the idea that stories, we need the stories with the right words, which we do. We need stories with the right words, the right plot, but we also need stories that we can embody, embody through dance, embody through song, embody through ritual, you know? So it may not be enough as I'm thinking about like, all right, how do we all support the world in the best way? Well, yes, we need the stories, but embodied stories are so much more powerful because then you get to, participate in the and have the gnosis of the story itself and that seems where there's just real opportunity to to make transformation happen well you know people used to dance all over the earth yeah people of all ages and all orientations used to dance um the bushmen of the kalahari sometimes called the pygmies because they're short Oh, but they're brilliant and they're born of the earth and they know that and they're nomadic and they have this close uh, relationship to the earth and the plants and the animals and the stars and all that kind of stuff. And they have a thing called a great dance where they, it happens at a certain full moon and it happens in a certain place. And they go to this place, which is apparently kept secret, when it's time to go there with the timing of that moon. And everyone goes. And then when, we, when they get there, everyone dances and everyone sings. And they imagine that what they're doing is connecting to the stars and connecting to the moon and that they're dancing their way back into hmm. life because in the course of the year, they've lost energy and they've lost friends and they've lost idea, you know, whatever they lost. And they have to make their way back to start over again. 
And so rather than watching a ball rolling down some building in Times Square, they all go to this place and they all dance and they all sing. And they imagine that when they sing, and it could be true too, that all the animals start to sing with them and pretty soon they're resonating all the way to the moon. And in that process, they all get renewed. And I don't know what, what the after party is like, <laughs> but, that, that, but, but that's what they do. And, and so that's our ancestry, yeah. is, is that people, people danced. And it, and, and, and it wasn't always the contest for who can do it. It was sometimes we're just all dancing together. Mm-hmm. And we support each other's rhythmic embodiment. And, uh, and people used to do that during troubled times gather ourselves anew because tomorrow we have to face the famine and we have to face the struggles. And so people would use dance as, as its own right of awakening and renewal. Mm-hmm. So I think it's all, all that stuff's waiting to be refound and refashioned. Um, and uh, so, so, yeah, we need, we need stories and then we need these ritual forms because all of the arts originally were aimed at the divine. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's really interesting or agonizing when people talk about the music industry. <laughs> like music's not an industry, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, it, it wasn't part of the Industrial Revolution, and it shouldn't <laughs> be, you know? Music was a way to connect to, express, and sustain the relationship between the human and the divine. And that's why... You know, there's a great love songs, but next year there needs to be new love songs because it all has to be made anew. And that was the old idea that culture, just like nature, was re- renewing itself all the time and that people were part of the embodied experience of both the death and the renewal, the loss and the reawakening. Mm. And since we're in the end of an era, I think that's what's trying to become conscious and I agree, it has to be embodied. And when, a, when something is embodied, when, when someone knows it at a bodily level, that's different than believing in it, mm-hmm. right? Because people say, do you believe in myths? Well, you don't have to believe in myths. <laughs> yeah. They're not asking you to believe right. them. They're asking you to enter them and walk around and see what you can learn inside. And you don't, you know, one of the definitions of myth is this, a series of lies that tells the truth. <laughs> yeah, so you know the truth. You know the you know, truth, and you don't get lost in the forest of lies. Was there ever an Icarus that flew through close to the sun and the wax holding the winds on, ling, wings on melted? No, I don't think so. But does, do people Icarus-like fly too close to the sun, which nowadays means the bright stage lights? Yes, all the time. It's a lie that reveals the truth. And so the arts were all part of that way of knowing and a way of really bowing to the mystery of life. Mm. So for what is worth, what I've learned from myth, from myths of all different places, the underlying mystery that is mm, connected or somehow implied in almost all of them is the mystery of life, death, renewal. Birth, death, rebirth. That's the mystery. We are in it. Mm. We are an expression of it individually. And I think we're trying to become a more conscious expression of it collectively. 
that the collective rite of passage is learning to walk in that mystery with some grace and some respect and a greater capacity for imagination. I think that's what we're being pulled into. Oh, oh. Um, if people are hungry for stories and places to go, I remember reading Edith Hamilton's anthology. I think it's just called Mythology. You know, and I know that, yeah. I know that you have a whole series of podcasts that tell stories, and and so definitely I encourage everybody listening go check out uh, your podcast. It's Mosaic Voices, right? Is the name of it? Is that Living Myth? Living Myth. The free podcast living myth yeah on mo on mosaicvoices.org that's your that's your website yeah that's the website yeah so definitely check that out but it, do you have other recommendations for like anthologies of stories you know that was definitely a greco-roman focused uh anthology yeah and so what do you where do you go to or where do you point people just the last chapter was the last chapter is uh myth from other cultures she just threw that in at the end <laughs> that's the book i read on my 13th birthday uh-huh. That changed my life. Yeah, I, I was this, you know, forlorn kid growing up in New York City, feeling like I wasn't misunderstood and I didn't have a place. And my aunt accidentally gave me that book. She thought it was a history book. <laughs> I read it that night and it was like, wait a minute. I found the other world. I found a language. I found a mystery and an understanding. And I qualified. It didn't matter that I was 13. It didn't matter that the family was poor. It didn't matter I was the smallest kid in my class. I was now, by virtue of being awake that night, I was invited into that world. So I carry a copy of that book right nearby (laughs) in my library. Yeah, I have it behind me on the bookshelf. But um, there's many, many of them. And so it's, it's tricky because so um, I may not be go- a good person for advice on that, but the way I tell stories, I'll read stories from all over. I was doing it this morning. And then I put them down and I walk away. And then I'm walking in a field, I'm walking down a street, and boom, one of the stories come back. And it just like hits me like mm-hmm. the wind coming. Mm-hmm. That story wants me to tell it. That's how I understand it. So the best stories are the stories that want you to learn them and know them and share them. And so where people find them, it's, it's complex. So there are collections. I was this morning looking at um, Native American myths and legends, mm-hmm. an amazing collection of uh, indigenous stories from around uh, what we call America, North America. Um, and then there's great Irish collections. And then there's amazing folk tales of Africa, it's just this big territory. Um, as far as understanding myths, um, Joseph Campbell's teacher wrote an amazing book, and I can't remember the title right now, but, but Joseph Campbell was studying art history, and he took a class with, and his name is escaping me, I can't believe it. It's probably on that bookshelf behind me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and so, well, I can't recommend it because I can't think of the title. We can Google it, but, figure it out, um, put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, it's almost there. It's close by. Anyway, I think uh, there's no per se collection that, that I think is the best way to go. Uh, you follow themes. Yeah, nowadays you can Google it and you, you put a theme in and it'll give you uh, references. And it's, it's like a field. It's like another realm. 
in which we're invited to wander around and you'll suddenly find something you didn't know you were looking for it, but darn, there's that story. And uh, so I really recommend stumbling into the stories because there's an old saying that it's not just that we're thirsty, but the fountain wants us to drink. Once we allow that we don't know and we kind of stumble in the darkness, we're likely to run into the story that we need. <laughs> The stories want to be found. Well said. And our hunger, our hunger is the vehicle. Well said. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, a lot of times we digest our stories through movies now. And we have to understand that the movies have a deep economic incentive. And, uh, and sometimes those stories can be important and revelatory and, and you can unpack them and you can feel the truth underneath them. And sometimes there's, the, actually the story isn't pointing it's a it's a series of lies that isn't pointing to truth it's actually pointing to another lie you know and these are the <laughs> this is what we have to also be mindful of or some other form of manipulation that uh that is difficult so it is you know i feel personally called to go back and and look at some of the old stories and not saying that there aren't beautiful new stories being told and and but as we form the new stories to start back at the beginning and then uh and then build new stories from there and also be mindful yeah. of all right not every story is true not every myth not every myth is actually pointing to truth just as we're fallible sometimes the arts can be fallible as well and so to, to carry that to carry that kind of barometer like do, do you feel it what do you feel in your body you know can you feel the truth of it can you really feel it because there's a part of us that knows and there's a part of us that remembers all the truth and it has to resonate with that part and and tickle our instrument in a way where it feels right. Yeah. And a myth is more like this water flowing. So the idea, if, you, if we go into it with the idea, I'm going to understand this, I'm going to interpret it and understand it, you know, the myth kind of goes like that. <laughs> don't come too close. It's got to be, it, 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 it's being in the presence of something that is a vehicle or a channel of the unseen of the of the divine ultimately like one difference between myths and fairy tales or myths and folk tales is in myths the gods and goddesses are there that's one of the differences it's not always the defining thing but that's one of the differences and and in a way you could say everyone's really looking for love and everybody's really looking for contact with the divine mm -hmm. a connection mm -hmm. to the divine and, and, and it's interesting, myth is that, you know, and you don't have to understand the story. Uh, I often describe a story as uh, mythological acupuncture. And a part of that story will stick you exactly where you need a needle. And if you accept that, like just a description of uh, a Persephone in a story or in an artwork and allow it to penetrate, then it begins giving knowledge and doing healing. Mm. And so it's a, it's a wonderful, uh, mysterious journey into a territory mostly forgotten, but nearby just the way the river of memory is nearby in the underworld. Well, thank you for being a river of memory, a living river of memory for all of us and uh, for all the work you do. It's been a, such a pleasure to be able to drop in here with you. Likewise, really good conversation. Thank you for all that you bring to the conversation. Yeah, of course. I do a lot of interviews, and sometimes I'm wondering what's going on <laughs> on the other side. So, 
Well, Notice we're both backed up with books there. Yeah, maybe, like, but maybe, anyway. that, maybe there's something to that. Yeah, well, thank you. That's thank you for your it. kind yeah, words. So, thank you. Thank you. All right. Good to be with you. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Michael Mead. I hope you enjoyed the stories and the information, and you learned a little bit about how to decode myths on your own. I also want to mention that if you're interested in Arcadia, the music festival, the transformational festival with all of the speakers and music, once again, fitforservice.com slash Arcadia with a K. I hope to see you there. It's going to be a really epic event. And we even have a campfire where we're going to get some storytellers out there telling some stories, just like Michael Mead. All right, my friends, much love, and I'll see you next week.